Hello. And is the dollar going to completely collapse? <laughs> That's going to be the uh, topic of the episode today. Uh, and when we say, is the dollar going to completely collapse? What we actually mean, is it going to collapse in your lifetime? Now, I actually think the answer is, is there's a high degree of probability. Christian believes it's an absolute and complete inevitability, and that's not just because he is our resident pessimist. He's got some good reasons for believing that. But we're not just going to talk about what is going on, why it's happening. We're also going to talk about what you can do about it, because believe it or not, there is something of a silver lining, and we will be discussing all of that on today's episode of Making the Argument. Thank you so much for joining us today. Listen, we have a goal of reaching 1,000 subscribers on the Making the Argument channel by May 1st. It looks like we're at about 775. So if you if you haven't already, head over to the link in the description right below. Go to the Making the Argument channel and subscribe there. And for everyone who is watching on the Making the Argument channel, thank you very much. Uh, we did come to a conclusion on what platform we would be moving our community chat to. And we are going to open that community chat up to our Volley members first. So shortly after we finish this live stream today, we'll put that link in the Volley chat. And everyone in our Volley chat can join. And next Tuesday, we'll put the public link here in the description of Tuesday's live stream. So I want to start off with, we immediately got a question. Um, Rawl says, what can save the dollar? Um, the answer is nothing. <laughs> well, real quick for, for our audience. Hi, I'm your host, Nick Frady. <laughs> Member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. My uh, wife, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, is out sick. But she promises that um, she's not just faking this to avoid intimacy with me. She actually is sick. <laughs> but she's feeling better, so we, we hope she's going to be back uh, next week. Obviously, we have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. And big-time doomer. Big-time, big-time doom and gloomer. I'll tell you what, ladies, he's single, and I have no idea why with all that pessimism. <laughs> and then we have our producer, our producer, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. And today... You're going to find out how right you were and, to not and, like central banking. An expert on federal funding for prostitution. If, oh. if, no, no, no. Federal funding <laughs> oh to my. study male prostitutes in <laughs> Vietnam. If you want to understand that <laughs> very weird reference, you're going to have to watch the previous episode where we actually took, these guys took turns guessing how much the government was using your tax dollars to spend on various things. And, it, and apparently there was a lot of money spent on studying male uh, prostitutes that, in Vietnam. That and, segment started at one hour and 28 <laughs> minutes for anyone who would like to go see and get the context for the comment that was just made. Yeah. If you want to understand, um, Hamilton guessed the amount almost like spot on, like almost to the dollar and Christian didn't think we spent enough, but anyway, thank you. Thank you, Christian for bringing that up. Again. Um, <laughs> by the way, Tina just messaged and said, seriously, Nick, LOL. Um, okay. So th the that? reason that I actually brought that up is because what we talked about on Tuesday's episode is actually in some ways really reminiscent of today's. It's it's almost like one conversation will be leading into another. So on Tuesday, we talked about taxes, the income tax. It was tax day on Tuesday. And today we're going to be talking about, you know, so, so that was more on the finance side. Today, we're going to be talking more about the, the macroeconomic and, and monetary picture of things. Well, and this is why this is important for people, because obviously if, if the when we say the dollar is going to collapse, that sounds like clickbait. But we're, we're not just throwing this out arbitrarily there there actually are reasons why we think things are moving in this particular direction and you're already starting to see certain countries coming up with alternative ways alternative currencies that they're going to use because right now and this is the first point we want to make because people talk about it a lot and it's like what the hell does that even mean right it's like the dollar is the world's reserve currency 
So you let, want to explain yeah, what let's reserve explain, currency? Explain that first. Oh, Christian. okay. Wait, I was wait. gonna I was gonna have you explain it, but basically, the the world's reserve currency means is that it's not just a. Here's an example. Um, nobody is using the um, I don't know Sudanese dollar in yeah. in the United States or Mexico or Canada or Japan or China, right? Or the European Union. No, nobody nobody is using the Zimbabwe dollar. In any of those countries, that's not a, a reserve currency. The United States dollar officially and unofficially is accepted in pretty much every single corner of the planet. In fact, in some ways, it's actually the only for a long time. It was the only currency that was accepted for purchasing oil. It was part of the petrodollar system yeah. that is starting to fray to some extent. We saw we saw some agreements between China and, and Saudi Arabia on that front. It tur- turns out when there's a turns out when there's a war and a major oil producer can no longer sell it on the typical petrodollar, you know, system, they start finding alternatives yes. to the dollar. So point is is that the reserve currency is a currency that can be widely exchanged for other uh, either other currencies or other products and services almost anywhere around the world. For a long time, historically, that was like the Spanish, you know, pieces of aid. And then it became the the British pound. And then after World War One, it transitioned to the United States dollar. And by the end of World War Two, it was basically firmly cemented, especially in Bretton Woods, that the dollar was going to be the world's reserve currency. And the reason that it was wasn't just because the rest of the world had been bombed out. That was a huge component because yeah. we were a stronger economy. A big component of it was is that the dollar was not just a piece of paper. The dollar was a certificate basically that you could go and exchange for gold and silver. It was backed up by a physical hard asset that you couldn't print arbitrarily and that, and that everybody around the world, uh, you know, subscribe value to. So that's what a, a reserve currency is. And even though the dollar is no longer pegged to the gold standard, it has, because the United States is preeminent position as the leading military, cultural, political, economic superpower, even after we fell off the gold standard in August 1971, the dollar has remained the world's well, reserve I, currency. So there's an important thing. We're going we're gonna to actually elaborate on this a little bit more. Basically, to be the world's reserve currency, it, it, part of the things that are necessary, the necessary components for that are, do you have a stable government, right? If you, if you have new dictators coming in every five minutes that can essentially engage in really, really um, you know, a, absurd monetary policy, then, then you're not going to be the world's reserve currency, right? You, you need to have a, a strong economy. You need to have, you know, strong international trade components. You need to have strong, fairly strong fiscal policy, fairly strong, and especially strong monetary policy. But what's important to understand is that when we started to look at moving all currencies off of some sort of gold standard, and making them pure fiat currencies, which is just paper money, right? The only reason your paper money has value is because the government tells you it has value. They'll accept it for the payment of debts to the government, and therefore other people within your society accept it as well in exchange for goods and services, right? But it's still a fiat currency. It's not as if you can go, if you go look at an old dollar, you could have exchanged it for gold. You can't do that anymore, right? That, that is just not a thing. But it's not like the United States unilaterally decided, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. When we did it, we pretty much upset the entire world system. And it's not as if there was another currency or economy or anyone else that was prepared to step up and become the world's reserve currency. So it was it was a combination of factors, right? This wasn't just arbitrary. It's a combination of factors with a strong economy, relatively stable government, and, and fairly sound monetary policy. And what we found is, is that when you took... When, when we completely got off the gold standard in the 1970s under Richard Nixon, 
that is what opened it up because it used to be the government could not just print dollars whenever they wanted. If the government started printing dollars, then what could happen is foreign governments could come in or anybody could come in and trade their dollars for gold. And so we were actually getting to a point where, again, they, they had the U.S. had inflated their currency so much to where people were coming in and trading all of their you know paper dollars for U.S. gold to the point where we were a couple of weeks away from having zero gold, owning zero gold. And that's what, that's what caused Nixon. And, and again, instead of doing things like, gosh, maybe we shouldn't engage in inflationary monetary policy. Maybe it'd be a good idea to, I don't know, get our spending under control. No, 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 that's ridiculous. It's this gold standard standing in the way of us being able to print all the dollars that we want. So let's just do that. And it's important to understand that when that happened, you took the world's reserve currency and you moved it where there was some restrictions on monetary policy that wasn't exclusively tied to the Federal Reserve just wanting to print more dollars, and you moved it into this, this brave new world where now the government could just print more dollars when it wanted to, and there really wasn't much holding it back except for maybe currency exchanges. Well, no, th- th- there were a couple other things. So, like, when we fell off the gold standard, and by the way, there's there's one comment um, from somebody saying, please elaborate what does, you know, what, what does Nicky mean by, by take us off? It, it meant that before... The dollar could you could take a dollar and you could go to a bank and you could say, I would like a dollar's worth yeah. of silver and they would give it to you. That is no longer the case now. You cannot go to any Federal Reserve Bank or branch bank or anything like that and ask for for physical silver or gold in return for the dollar. That's what it means by taking us off that standard. But um before the creation of money, I mean, they were kind of cheating because that's the well, reason it, that they it, fell off, right? Because it was there were too many dollars that had been created. And so it created a crisis, a run on the central banks, basically. And that's why Nixon took us off. But but before we fell off the gold standard, the biggest thing that was holding back the creation of more money was the supply of gold and silver. Yeah. But now the biggest thing that's holding ba- us back from the creation of more money is just political will and public opinion. And those things usually encourage more money printing and more spending, not yeah. less. Well, and this was this is an important question because in the audience, I, I think... Uh, Juden's brought this up and, and um, a couple others where they said, well, wait a second, what about FDR? And, and you're, you're absolutely right. FDR in the 1930s actually made it illegal to own gold privately. And, and if you go back, they didn't know this at the time, but they made it illegal to own gold. So people had to, to hand over their gold. And <laughs> he was setting the price of gold based off of his lucky numbers. This is... <laughs> Please believe me when I tell you this is this is not made up. This is not me just saying this because I don't agree with FDR's politics. This is these are the things that he did in the 1930s in the midst of, of the economic crisis that made it significantly worse. By the way, but he didn't completely take the U.S. dollar off the gold standard. There, there was still, uh, to some degree, an international structure in place. There was still there was still um, tied to commodities, if, even if it wasn't completely backed by it, right? And that that's where you also uh, get into to deals that came afterwards that we'll talk about. But I just wanted to answer that that question that yes, FDR had something to do with it, but it was Nixon that essentially, think of it this way, FDR weakened it, Nixon completely removed any vestige of it. And Christian, a few days ago, you and I were having a conversation. I asked you, what were the things that led to the U.S. leaving the gold standard? And you told me that it was a decision that was made years beforehand. Decades beforehand, because too many dollars had been printed. Again, when the dollars the dollars represented another form of wealth rather than just a piece of paper, the dollar represented gold in a vault somewhere. Yeah. Right? And so when you printed too many dollars, but you didn't increase the amount of gold in the vault because you can't print gold unless you're the Spanish in the, you know, 15th century or whatever. Um 
you can't really print gold that easily, right? So suddenly when you print too many certificates in exchange for the gold and people know about it, well, I, because it was also the world's reserve currency, guess what? The rest of the world had a bunch of dollars. Yeah. And so central banks and foreign governments were were draining the, Ameri- the, the United States' gold reserves because they knew that if they didn't exchange their paper money for, for gold, somebody else was going to beat them to it. And eventually there would be no gold left. And when that happened, Nixon realized, okay, we can either wait two weeks and then literally run out of gold, and then we will be forced off the gold standard no matter what, or we can just take ourselves off right now and at least save the last two weeks worth of our gold reserves from being completely taken by foreign countries and governments. I see. So, yeah, that was the decision that had been made over decades of previous administrations. Again, printing money. Not to the degree that we've seen today, though. It's... What they had in the 1970s was a minor problem compared to today. And in my um, show notes outlines, I actually laid out this, quite frankly, extremely bearish, pessimistic, (laughs) almost black-pilled case for for the state of America's macro finances. And I know that you said this in the intro that, like, you know, know, Christian basically thinks that it is inevitable. When you look at all the different factors— it's really hard to come to the conclusion that there's well, a way out of the so problem. So let's so fact, factor one was the dollar was the world's reserve currency, which put us in a very advantageous economic position worldwide because it was easy to conduct trade if everything if, if major trade is being conducted in your currency. If you don't got to go through the uh, the process of exchanging currencies to conduct trade, that that makes it easier for you. It gives you an advantage. It also means that everybody in the world has you know some vested interest in doing business with the United States, keeping U.S. dollars, which can prop up and make you know make the dollar a little bit more secure, right? It gives it an extra degree of security there. So the next point was, is okay, but that was based off of the fact that we had, you know, comparatively speaking, there's going to be a lot of people going, what do you mean we had good sound monetary policy? Comparatively speaking with the rest of the world, the United States made sense to be the reserve currency. When we completely moved off the gold standard, you could argue at that point, like, okay, what was the point now? What was the reason now? It's because no one else was in a position to actually challenge us for that sort of economic hegemony. They just couldn't. But now we're at a point where inflationary uh, monetary policy has gotten so bad, right? And there, there's so many other issues going on with respect to things like conflict, right? Russia, China. China doesn't want the U.S. dollar to be the reserve currency, Russia doesn't want the U.S. dollar to be. So now we have more and more countries where we're taking more of an openly hostile you know, direction toward them. International trade is as such to where more people are starting to question the efficacy of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency because of, one, international concerns with respect to conflict, but also concerns over our monetary policy. Can another country's currency become the international currency? Yes. I, I actually don't think it will, though. I, I don't. I, so I agree. So the answer to your question is yes, because we weren't the first one. The U.S. dollar was not the first like reserve currency. I mean, in, in the modern sense, we, maybe. But we replaced the British pound. Yeah, as it the used to be the British currency. pound. Um, so no, a, another currency potentially could, but I don't think you're going to get that. I think you're going to get more. I think De- we're going to get gonna more gonna regional. Get I think you're going to get decentralized, and I think you're going to get regional. Uh, currency. So you're going to get like China being a, a hegemon within a particular area could theoretically be I the see. reserve currency for a particular area, especially the people that it's doing the bulk of its trade with. Where that comes into problems with China is we're their biggest trading partner, um, you know, just pound for pound. So there, there's, there's some other factors at play here to explain, in, in my opinion, why this is inevitable. And it's really important to to list this out. So we talked previously about like the backstory what a uh, reserve currency is, why we're no longer on the gold standard, 
and a little bit about what the consequences of falling off were. Now I'm really going to get into what the consequences were. Yeah. And this is going to get into to why this is inevitable. Yeah. So I've got I've got four points that I think one if we just had one of these problems, it would be bad. Yeah. But all four of these are happening all at the same time. The first one is is that the federal debt to GDP is over 100%. It's 125%. The federal deficit not not the amount of debt, the deficit, the mm -hmm. annual amount of money that we're spending more than we're taking in, that is at an all-time high, basically, and it's rising at a rapid pace right now. Yeah. We have interest on the federal debt is going from about 1% a year ago before the Fed began their interest rate hikes, and now they're projected to go, they're already over 2%. They're projected to, to keep increasing as long as the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates high. They could end up going to 5%. Mm -hmm. To give you an idea... 5% interest on a $32 trillion debt, that is the equivalent of our annual deficit right now. That's that's over $1.4 trillion in interest payments. So that's point three. And then point four is the Federal Reserve has gone from pumping over $100 billion into the economy every month in quantitative easing, which we could get into explaining what that is in a second, to shredding almost a hundred billion dollars a month in quantitative tightening. So that's almost, that's about a $200 billion swing per month draining market liquidity. So when you have all four of those things, basically it's, it's create, it, it, it's the, you know, category five hurricane yeah, F seven yeah. tornado, you know, just perfect conditions for, for the worst storm, the, the worst storm ever to be well, completely and, honest. And this is, this is the part where, when we talk about what will the dollar collapse, most people look what's going on. The fact that the Fed actually raised interest rates was was a was a positive thing. They needed to. It, it was it was problematic because it was all set arbitrarily low when it came to interest rates, and again, the printing of money had to stop. Um, otherwise, inflation was just going to get completely. I mean, it, it's already really bad, but you get to the point where you get to hyperinflation, and that just destroys economies and societies. So the, the question is, is that, okay, if we've raised interest rates, if we recognize that there's a problem with inflation, we're starting to see policies change on the monetary side. Well, then why do you think the dollar is going to collapse? And the question that you have to ask yourself on this is, why does it get out of control in the first place? Like what's, if everybody knows that hyperinflation is bad, why would any government engage in, in inflationary monetary policy or hyperinflationary monetary policy? And that's where you get into the question of why do governments want money? Well, they want money to do a couple of things, but typically, especially in our, they want money to buy votes. And you, you brought up some, you, you have some interesting figures here too, when it talks about, and this is something too, where again, we need to understand both parties, both yes. parties are guilty on this. There, there, there's a couple things that I want to show, and then there's a couple things that I want to read off in this episode, and, and then get some feedback from you guys in the audience as well, um, because I know that we have a lot of questions, actually. Um, it, it, in fact, some, some of these are really great questions. Um, like, you know, I second that, can the dollar be saved? I don't think it can. And, and the reason why is going to be shown in some of these charts and stuff that we're going to read off. Hamilton, I, I want to show the, the first thing is, these. this is data from the Federal Reserve, by the way. Um, click on the second link that we've got on this screen here. This is the federal surplus or deficit going back to 1900. <laughs> Look at what, okay, so so the, the, the black line, and I'm going to say this for um, people that are going to be tuning in an audio after we're done with the live stream. 
what you're seeing here, this is data from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis um, or the Federal Reserve branch in St. Louis. The black line is zero. So that's that's basically break even, right? You're, you're spending a dollar, you're taking in a dollar. What you saw from basically the turn of the century, last century, all the way up until, whoa, whoa and behold, 1971, <laughs> it was a flat line. And you see this tiny dip around 1940 to 1945. Yeah, that would be World War II. Tiny deficit. <laughs> and then we fall off the gold standard. If you drag the, the cursor along, you see it uh, right at 1971, we fall off the gold standard and look at what happens. It's just a march downwards. And then, oh, in the, in the 90s, apparently Democrats and Republicans got together and balanced the budget under Newt Gingrich and, and, and Bill Clinton. And we had this temporary blip where we had a, a budget surplus. And then immediately after that, it just crashes, right? And by crashes, I mean federal spending outpaces federal incomes yeah. massively. It's almost with each passing year, it's gotten worse and worse. And Hamilton, I don't know if the chart will actually show, like if you hover over it or click on it, if it will actually like give you exact figures. Yeah, it does. It does. So um, go back to 2000, for example, or 2001. So that was when we first started having, that, that was our last year with a budget surplus. We had a, a profit, the federal government brought in $128 billion more than it was spending out. And then, lo and behold, the rest of George W. Bush's presidency, because to Nick's point, this yeah. is in both parties, the rest of George W. Bush's presidency, go to 2002. Deficit 2003, we, we ran a deficit of $377 billion. 2004, $412 billion. 2006, $248 billion. 2007, $160 billion. 2008, $458 billion. This is that also was, a housing market collapse. And, and what are we going to do? That was George Bush. And then Barack Obama comes into office. And guess what he does? 2009, deficit of $1.4 trillion. First trillion dollar deficit ever. And now it's almost a miracle if we don't run a trillion dollar yeah. deficit. 2010, another trillion dollar deficit. 2011, another trillion dollar deficit. 2012, another trillion dollar deficit. Oh, and then, and then they raise taxes after 2012. And so we get a blip where we're only losing 400 500 billion and, and then here's the really sad part this is this chart is actually brutal to donald trump yeah look at when donald trump takes office 2016 we run a deficit of 548 billion dollars 2017 we run a deficit of 665 billion 2018 we run a deficit of 779 billion 2019 almost a trillion dollar deficit 983 and then 2020 we yes. run it now we do straight up covid it falls off a cliff. We run a three deficit trillion. of over three trillion. Every single year of Donald Trump's presidency, the federal deficit, yeah. not even just the debt, the deficit grew every single year of his presidency. Yeah. Well, and this this is Oh, the, by the way, it never got better under Joe Biden, right? It, yeah. it bounced back and we're still running a one point four trillion yeah, dollar deficit. Yeah. The, the the problem that we have here. So you might ask the question, okay, why <laughs> all right, so why again, why would people do this if we know it's good? Because it's short-term benefits versus long-term problems, right? It, 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 nothing is easier than, than promising voters the world right now, especially when your election victory is not going to be determined by the fundamental things that you set up in the economy that could devastate it 20 years from now. It's going to be determined by what you did right now. Well, if I whip out the federal credit card and I just start loading up on programs and handing out money and, and the stock market is booming and people are getting hired, even if it's primarily a result of artificially low interest rates, inflationary monetary policy, and all these other things, 
it still looks good for me. My numbers are coming in great two months before the election, which is where people are paying attention before they vote for somebody. And so we've created this perverse incentive where both both parties have this incentive to keep federal dollars flowing. And and I I want to I want to convey a story here real quick because I think this is informative. On, on when you're done with that, there's a there's a comment that I want to read off to you guys and yeah. show you a comparison because somebody brought up that this reminds me of our why minute that we did on Rome. Yeah, but but go ahead, Nick. I want so, to hear the story. So I was we were I was talking with some people locally and we were discussing various things that they wanted funding for and there was healthcare and there was education and there was you know local investment and infrastructure all, all these various things. And, and I'm sitting in a room and I was the only legislator there. There was supposed to be like four of us, but it was, but it was only me. So I got all the questions. I actually loved it. And everybody was very nice and polite, but they, they had serious concerns. And um, one person asked me, they're, they're like, well, you know, Nick, is, is the state going to take over funding, you know, some of these positions that we used to have within the, our, our, our social welfare system? And I said, no. And that kind of surprises people because typically the the political response is, well, we'll have to go and take a look at that and see what we can do. And obviously we've got a lot of important priorities. My answer was just, no, it's not going to happen. And, and, I, and I said, it's not because anybody doesn't acknowledge that that you're trying to do your best with the staff that you have. And it's because we don't have the money for it. Um, well, and, and then the answer was, well, can we lean on the federal government? And, and, I, and I remember looking back going, to do what? Well, would you... I said, guys, there's three ways that the government can spend money. They can tax it so we can pull it out of the economy, run it through a a massive bureaucracy and then give it back, right? We can do that. Or they can borrow it. I said, but unfortunately, U.S. treasuries are in the toilet right now because nobody wants to buy them, at least not at the rates that they used to. Or they can print it. And oh, by the way, we've printed off over $3 trillion in the last couple of years, which means they cannot print anymore because inflation's out of control. I said, so if the government cannot really tax more without really throwing a wrench in the economy, if it cannot borrow anywhere near what it needs to borrow because people don't want to lend it to us, and if it can't print it, so what, what pressure do you want me to apply to the federal government in order to get more funds for this? I said, not to mention the fact that I don't agree with it. <laughs> and and, and it, it was almost as if, it was almost as if this was the first time an elected official sat down and said, no, you're not going to get this money and there's no way to get it. And the reason why you can't get it is because all of the things previously where I was saying, we can't afford this. We don't have the money for this. This is going to be problematic. This is going to be, I was told I was a mean, uncaring, insensitive human being that just wanted poor people to starve and, and sick people to die. And that wasn't true at all. It was just, no, I'm, I'm looking at this and this is a question of resource allocation and resource creation and resource creation does really, really well in the free market where it's easy to create resources and it's easy to create wealth. There's a lot of problems when the government is constantly throwing up new regulations, new taxes, new barriers, new requirements. And with each one of these new programs that we've established, they are dependent upon government subsidization. They're dependent upon government funding. And what we said was, is this isn't sustainable. And you said, that's ridiculous. We've been sustaining this for years, sometimes even decades. I'm like, yeah, but you're doing it based off of inflationary monetary policy and and running up more debt. And you can only do that so long. The credit card will hit a max at some point. And then the modern monetary theories come in and go, that's ridiculous. We can just print more money. (laughs) We're we're going to get into the, the, so the, let me round this up real quick. So the bottom line is I'm looking like 
no, we, we, ladies and gentlemen, the government pulled out a credit card and that's what we've been living on. This excess that you've seen was not a result of more productivity and everyone's just going gangbusters. This was a credit card. We pulled out a massive credit card and now we've got to pay not only what we bought, but we've got to pay what we bought with interest. And you're not going to have the money for all of these programs that are no longer sustainable because the answer was it wasn't that administration before did something miraculous and, and managed to make it all work because they were just so no, you, you created future liabilities. You were never going to be able to cover under your system. And then, and here's the worst part, you created conditions and expectations where people thought, well, this is just the way it is now. And, and instead of actually coming up with real sustainable solutions within the market, we got the, the electorate got addicted to government solutions that they thought they could just endlessly deliver on. And now you look at charts like this and this is, it's like everything we said has now come to fruition. It's like it, this, this was, chart, this was predictable. It was not, yep. it was predictable. Th th this chart to explain to our audio listeners this is a chart from a guy named John Gabriel. This is actually two years out of date. This was January, 2021. He hasn't updated it yet. He'll only update it like every three or four years. And it, it, it just falls off a cliff. So he's showing federal revenues minus federal um, expenditures. And you see this little tiny blip in blue that's that he calls the dot-com surplus at the turn of the millennium. That was the one time in, in decades going back to Reagan where we actually ran a budget surplus. Remember, we already showed that chart from the Federal Reserve showing the deficit. Um, and how that has grown since 1971 and it's exponentially grown since 1971. Every single year that we're running a deficit, it's not like that money doesn't go anywhere. That money that's owed gets added to the debt, which is why it compounds on itself. There were a few comments in chat about how the compounding deficits is what's going to end up killing us. And that's why the dollar is going to be destroyed because it's not just one year of running a deficit of $1.4 trillion. It's one year running a deficit of $1.4 trillion plus 10 years ago under Obama, we were running trillion dollar deficits every single year as well. And so when you look at this chart, it just falls off a cliff. You see the red, which is the total debt. It gets worse, exponentially worse over time. There was a, also a comment from um, Rawl who said, this reminds me of the Wymanet that we did on Rome. I sent Hamilton a chart. Nick, I want you to take a look at this. Yeah. This is the chart showing the value <laughs> of the Roman currency, the denarius, how much silver was in the denarius over time, yeah. over, over many centuries. Now flip back and forth between this and that chart. Wow, is there a similarity in the shape and the curvature of that chart? Yeah. What do you think, Hamilton? <laughs> it looks like there is to me. What, what's happening is, is that the value of our money is being eroded because more money is having to be printed to fund the federal government's endless deficits. This is a term that's called, um, that's called debt monetization. Yeah. And here's how it works. Congress wants to spend money on the Save the Puppies Act, which is actually a giant bailout for Silicon Valley Bank, <laughs> right? So... They decide, okay, we need, you know, $500 million, whatever, for the Save the Puppies Act, even though it doesn't do anything about puppies in the bill. Well, the problem is that they don't have any money because they've already spent all that money on everything else and we're running a perpetual deficit. So they have to issue treasury bonds in order to bring that money in. A treasury bond is debt, right? They're selling debt to the public that then buys it with the promise that they will get paid back the full amount, plus they will be paid interest on it every single year until the full amount is paid back. Well, what happens when nobody wants to buy that debt? Yeah. Or what happens when people say, you're not paying enough interest on me loaning you money? 
especially because inflation is through the roof. I don't want 1% interest when inflation is 8 or 9%. I want 8 or 9% interest at least. And so who else buys the debt when nobody else is willing to? The Federal Reserve buys it. Yeah. And how does the Federal Reserve buy it? Well, they don't work a job. The Federal Reserve prints the money because they have the power to do so. They literally create the money out of thin air and then they buy the debt. And suddenly Congress now has the dollars to spend on the Save the Puppies Act. But what happened? The money supply increased. It wasn't like like they, they actually did something productive, ran a job or started something or invented something that then created wealth. They printed the money out of thin air and now suddenly Congress has the money to spend. When you do that, and when you get locked in a cycle where the only institution that's willing to loan you money is your own central bank that's printing the money, that's how you create a hyperinflationary debt spiral that will end up destroying the currency, in this case, the dollar. No, that that's a beautiful explanation. I also want to take a question here from uh, Miss LED uh, said, sorry for this ignorant question, but who is all this money owed to? Not an ignorant, Not an question. ignorant question. It's a great question. I have the question it, as well. It is it is owed it is owed to several different entities. Um some of it is owed to foreign governments, which which buy U.S. treasuries. Uh, most of it is owed by people within the United States, which buy U.S. treasuries. But then Christian also explained kind of how the Federal Reserve uh, prints money for the purposes of monetizing the debt. So it's kind of a bait and switch game. But the important thing to remember is that the way that the debt is usually the way this usually happens, and, and Christian can elaborate on this, um, the the U.S. government basically sells treasury bonds, and they don't just sell treasury bonds in an, in an open and free market, right? They sell treasury bonds that they then give special tax privileges to and everything else. So one of the reasons why a lot of companies will buy up U.S. treasuries is because you're essentially guaranteed to get your money back with a little bit of interest. And so it's always been considered somewhat safe, not to mention the fact that because of tax advantages that the government gives... Lo and behold, politicians will give you tax advantages if you give your money to them to invest as opposed to somebody else. And so they, they've kind of created this, this tilted system in their favor. But that's where most of the debt is owed. That's why sometimes people will say, well, the U.S. debt is just owned. It's owed to us. What's the big deal? Because it has negative impacts with respect to um, you know, government spending expectations and, and overall monetary policy, because you do get to a point eventually where people are saying, okay, wait a second, I'm looking at all this government spending. I'm looking at all this government policy. I don't want to buy us treasuries because I don't think they're going to give me a good interest rate, especially with everything that's going on. So I'm not going to buy them anymore. Well, if, if us spending and entitlement programs and everything else are so tied to government subsidies. Like we're not we're not bringing in enough revenue just through the normal productive economy where it, you know it's tax revenue. Now the government has to get its money through borrowing or through printing and they can't borrow it anymore because people don't want to buy treasuries. That's where they start printing and that's where you get that that downward yeah. spiral that really just gets the, exacerbated. The, the question of like, that's a that's a great question. No, it, it really is. And and when I hear people say, "Well, we owe most of this debt to ourselves, so it's not a problem." It's a huge problem. For the first time ever, the like literally in the past year, for the first time ever, the Federal Reserve is the single largest holder of federal debt. That has never been the case until the yeah. past year. That is a sign that the hyperinflation is coming. Because we're getting to a point where people, institutions, banks, ind- individuals, foreign governments are not willing to buy federal debt because they don't think they're going to get paid back enough money for it to be worth them investing that money in. And so 
increasingly the only organization that's willing to do it is the one that has to do it. And the only way that they can do it is by printing money. And as we said earlier, every dollar the Federal Reserve prints is going to increase the amount of money supply. That's what's driving the inflationary debt spiral. But here's the thing, too, to to remember. This is a really important point. I think this goes to a question somebody else was was asking earlier on. When... When the federal so when the federal government's to the point where like crap we can't tax and crap nobody wants to buy our bonds anymore, so we got to print. When they first print that money, that's not when you would experience the inflation, right? So the federal government prints that money and then they spend it or they inject it into the economy. And when they do so, they're actually getting a high market value for that dollar. They're getting the price of the dollar right now. It actually takes a little bit of time for the economy to catch up to the fact that oh we. We just suddenly have a whole bunch of more dollars. This didn't come through increased productivity. It's not that there's more goods and services in the economy or more people trying to get those goods and services. There's just more dollars, just pieces of paper competing for the same number of resources. So the value of your dollar drops, but not for the people that get it first. So, they're not just ripping you off by creating this. They are doubly ripping you off because they're getting the full you know, value by creating this. And then by the time you get the dollar, now all of a sudden prices have gone up. So they bought the, they brought everything that they were going to buy when the prices were still at that price. But by the time it gets to you, you're in trouble. So I want to go through some of these four points that we brought up earlier and, and, and get some reaction to, to lay out why the, the situation is so catastrophically bad. <laughs> I feel like we've had three, three parts of this show where we're like, this is why it's so catastrophically it, bad. I don't think people realize what's about to happen, to be completely well, honest. Well, I certainly don't think people on Capitol Hill realize what's so, about so to happen. So let's do this, and then I want to move, move into what could happen, like what would be necessary in order to fix it. So let's, let's go to this last part, and then I want to go, I want to go into that. So take some more questions. So as I said earlier, like every single macroeconomic factor that could possibly go wrong is all happening all at once. And I mean, think about how the Federal Reserve's balance sheet exploded. Uh, actually, well, we'll start with the debt, right? So so go to this slide. Here's the debt yeah. over time. And lo and behold, wow, it was almost nothing in 1971. <laughs> And, and it's just exponential growth since then. And then, I mean, COVID happened and then it was yeah. even more exponential. It was just a straight hockey stick up. Um, the Federal Reserve has had to step in and basically monetize the debt. And by the way, this is not anything recent. This wasn't something that I, I was railing on Trump earlier. This actually goes back way before Trump. There's an article here that I want you to pull up, Hamilton. Um, on No, that's the value of the dollar. Um, this one right here. I, I want to read this off. In, 20, in a 2013, this is 10 years ago. In a 2013 article, the St. Louis Fed featured arguments that quantitative easing, quantitative easing for those that are listening um, who don't already know, quantitative easing is a fancy government term to mean money printer go burr. It means <laughs> it means printing more money, right? We've already talked about this earlier. Yeah. Um, the St. Louis Fed featured, this is 10 years ago, featured arguments that quantitative easing was not debt monetization because the Fed balance sheet would return to normal. Here was their conclusion, quote, so is the Fed monetizing debt using money creation as a permanent source of financing for government spending? The answer is no. And then they go on to say that, you know, 
once that occurs, you know, the, the, the Fed buy, uh, balance sheet will return to its normal pre-2008 crisis levels. And once that occurs, the Treasury will be left with just as much debt held by the public as before the Fed took any of these actions. Um, the person who wrote this article then said, well, clearly none of that ever happened. Because <laughs> when you look at the Fed's balance sheet, when you um, when you when you look at the Fed's um, uh, um, balance sheet, actually, oh, I don't think I sent you this. Well, I'll tell you this. Actually, no, I did send you this, Hamilton. If you pull this up right here, this is the there Fed balance go. sheet. Look at where it was pre two thousand eight crisis. If you hover your your cursor over two thousand eight, you'll see that it was basically nothing. It was less than a trillion dollars in big terms. It was basically nothing. And then after the two thousand eight crisis, by the way, balance sheet means how much how much money the Fed has printed to buy assets, and now it has it on its balance sheet, which means that it printed money in order to purchase something, usually federal debt. But it can purchase other things too, like mortgage-backed securities and and stuff like that. And in some cases, it was buying like corporate bonds. I think in 2020, it ended up being like the lender and buyer of last resort in 2020, which was crazy. But anyway, long story short, this is money that's being printed into existence and pumped into the economy, either into the private sector or directly into the hands of Congress. How would the Federal Reserve's balance sheet decline? by not buying things and letting them run off its balance sheet by expiring. So for example, it buys a treasury bond that has like a two year expiration. It buys it and then it doesn't re-up it when the two years comes and okay. buys another one. Instead, it just lets it expire and then suddenly it's fallen off its balance sheet. They started doing that. If you zoom in, I mean, just look at the explosion here. Go back to like, like 2019 or 18. It was already really high. It was over $4 trillion yeah. had been pumped into the economy. And then look at what happened when 2020 came along. $4 trillion all the way up to $7 trillion in one year. Wow. In one year. And then after that, it kept marching north. It went from $7 trillion to $9 trillion. And then finally, inflation kicked in because, lo and behold, you, you printed $6 trillion and pumped it into the, into, into the stock market and the broader economy, and you gave it to the federal government, and they spent it on COVID bailouts and stimulus checks and all that stuff. It's going to create inflation. You just increase the money supply. And the Federal Reserve's response to that was, uh-oh, we made a problem. We need to fix it. And so they start deleveraging. They start decreasing their balance sheet, and they start raising interest rates to fight inflation. But lo and behold, as they're, they just started doing this, and yet you see this blip right here Yep. at the very end, that's the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Oh, really? Where the Federal Reserve had to step in and print money to bail out the depositors. And this is going to keep happening as so they that, keep so increasing interest So that did end up rates. happening. Yes. They had to print money to bail out the depositors that were not previously insured by FDIC. And again, you're seeing now most of the effort that the Federal Reserve had, had engaged in to deleverage right. has been has been erased. We're almost back to an all-time high again. And guess what? When the next bank collapses, which it will, especially if the Fed keeps raising interest rates, when the next bank collapses, the same thing will happen. The, the Federal Reserve is stuck. They, they, they can't fix the problem. Well, and this is and this is where we're going to get into the next part of like, okay, theoretically, if, if they were going to fix the problem, how would they fix it? Now, the, the argument that we tend to get from the left is you have to tax the rich, you have to tax the rich more in order to, to pay for this, because after all, they're not paying their fair share. 
We already discussed in the previous episode that that's, that's just not accurate. If you want to tax the rich more, fine, but you don't get to claim they're not paying their fair share because they're, they're paying more than the wealth that they actually have, and the bottom 50% are paying almost no federal income taxes whatsoever. And you have to make over $70,000 a year in the United States to essentially not be a net beneficiary of government transfer payments. So again, if you want to tax the rich more, fine, make that argument, but don't create this fake argument. But let's let's just say... Christian, I'll tell you what, I want to go, I want to do, I don't want to just tax the rich more. I want to tax it all, baby. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the richest 1%, which is about $500,000 or more on average in the United States, which that tends to blow people's mind. They usually think, oh, top 1% must all be millionaires. Nope. In in most, in in about slightly over most states, if you're making over $500,000 a year, you're in the richest 1%, right? You know, in under a million, you're in the richest one percent for every state. I think the the, the wealthiest state is something like um, what is it, Connecticut? I think where it's yeah, Connecticut. The top one percent income threshold is nine hundred and fifty five thousand dollars. So even in the you know the the state with like the wealthiest one percent, it's still under a million. So here's what we're gonna do: we're gonna round up all these people. Now keep in mind they are paying taxes. We're gonna round all of these people up. Who are all these people? Everybody, 500,000 or more. Elon 500, Musk, more. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Oh, no, 500 grand or more. That's what we're going to round up. We're not just okay. not just the billionaires. I'm not getting just the billionaires. I'm going after the half millionaires as well. You got $500,000. We're going to come in. We're going to take all of your money out of your bank account, but that's not enough. We're going to take all of your stock assets as well. And your home. But you know what? That's not enough either. I want your real estate assets. I'm going to take your your money, cash in the bank, your real estate assets, your stock assets. You got bonds somewhere. I get those too. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that same person and we're going to harvest and sell your organs on the black market, right? Like we are getting every dime we can squeeze out of these people. You've just paid for federal spending for maybe half a year. Maybe half a year. And, and oh, by the way, since they're all gone and all their businesses are gone and all their assets are gone, you're not going to tax them next year. This is a one-time deal. Yeah. So when we, when we talk about this, this so when, when you hear from the left that this is just a simple taxing issue, no, it isn't. You, you can tax because they like to say, we're not going to raise taxes on anybody making $400,000. That was Joe Biden's promise. We're not going to make no tax raises on, on people making under 400 grand. Just the, just these millionaire class. Okay. Well, I just taxed them all liquidated their assets and sold their organs on the black market. And you're still only covering half of the, of the government spending. You still can't balance the budget. You You, still, you don't, you haven't even wiped out the deficit. Hamilton to, to, to really explain just how bad this problem is. You could, you could take Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. You could shoot them and take all their money. Like it's communist Russia. Right. And you will be able to fund the federal government's expenditures for 30 days. Then you won't be able to fund it after that. Yeah, with two of the richest people in the world, you could take every cent they have and you'll be able to fund it for one month. And so there's no way we had a comment from somebody saying, you still haven't explained how the dollar hasn't collapsed. There's just enough. I love this. Yeah, comment. There's, there's just, just enough understanding of this of monetary policy in this podcast to be dangerous. No explanation of what would cause the collapse of the dollar. OK, buddy, here's 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 how it happens. There's only three ways the government can raise money and Nick interject yeah. whenever you want. Yeah, you can either tax it. Borrow you can it. either borrow it. Or you can print it. Yeah, We've already talked about how you can't tax your way out of this problem. Yeah. There's too much spending that needs to, there's too much of a gap that needs to be filled. You could kill all the millionaires you want and take all their money and you still can't fill the hole, right? So you can't tax your way out of the problem. 
So maybe you borrow your way out of the problem. Well, interest rates are going up. People increasingly don't want the bond market imploded. Michael Burry probably made close to a billion dollars shorting the treasury market last year because he realized nobody wants to loan the federal government any money anymore because they are losing money when they loan the federal government money because the interest rate on the money that they're being loaned is less than what the inflation rate is. Why would you throw your money away? It's a bad investment. That's a bad investment. So nobody wants to loan the federal government any money anymore because they're not getting a good enough return on their investment. So you can only print it because you can force the Federal Reserve to loan you money because the Federal Reserve doesn't need to be paid back because they can print the money. When you print the money, you increase the money supply, which drives inflation. And by the way, even if you could borrow it from people, you have to offer higher interest rates to do it which means it necessitates more borrowing to fund the higher interest rates, which then requires more borrowing, which then requires higher interest rates, which then requires more borrowing. Are you, are you seeing a pattern here? Yeah. You create a positive feedback loop where you have to take on more debt to pay off your previous credit card debt. It's like taking on another credit card to pay off your previous credit card, and you're taking on another credit card at a higher APR yeah. to do so. The end result is a debt crisis unlike anything this in, this country, this world has ever seen because this, we are the largest economy on the planet. And this this is the part where the collapse comes into play. Okay, once once people lose confidence because they're still electing the politicians that are saying, elect me, the real problem here is we haven't taxed the rich enough or we're going to do some scheme over here. But none of them are going to come in and say, hey guys, we have to drastically decrease the federal budget. And oh, by the way, the only way to do that is to drastically reform entitlements, right? Your Medicaid, your Medicare, your social security, our welfare system, all of it. There has to be drastic cuts. The money that is the federal spending on educate drastic cuts. There has to be drastic cuts in all of it because so much of the spending was artificial. It wasn't, it wasn't coming in as part of a natural, and I don't, I don't like to use the word healthy to describe taxes, but part of a, a healthy tax base. It, it was inflated by this. And you built programs over the years, over the generations that were dependent upon increased economic growth, increased population growth. Our population numbers, we're one of the only countries in the West now where our population numbers are holding steady. We, we, don't, we don't see a lot of a massive expense, but they're holding steady. Well, the ages are going up. So you, you can't deliver on all the promises the federal government made. You just, you can't do it. It's not possible. But voters don't want to hear that. The moment, the moment someone like Paul Ryan, not exactly a, you know, a, a champion yeah. of fiscal responsibility and you know, monetary responsibility, the moment Paul Ryan was like, we have to address entitlement programs or else they're going to go away. And we're talking about like minor adjustments. Yeah. Right. It was he wants to throw granny off a cliff. These mean Republicans are more and they're, they're so in bed with their rich donors that they would rather grandma die than a billionaire have to pay another dollar in taxes. That was the narrative. And I'm, guess what? It works. It yeah. did. I'm old enough to remember. I, I wrote this in my notes. I'm old enough to remember. And, and, and by the way. This goes across both parties. We had somebody who, who mentioned, like, you're only bringing up the president, but not Congress. It happens with split administrations. It happens with single party control in D.C., and it happens with both parties. Like, there is no political will to cut spending anywhere. The only way this, the, the, by the way, the only way this is not inevitable 
is if we do cut spending and we balance the budget. Yeah. The problem is, is that there is no political will to do it, and there's no public opinion in favor of it. Well, and somebody Barack somebody, brought, somebody brought up a good point right here where he says, "Didn't mention our hugely overblown military costs." Laughing my ass off. Hey, uh, Wimple's Temple. We also have hugely overblown military costs. I say this as a combat veteran, you know, with Army Special Operations. No, all of it. The military budget, too, is a huge problem, and and especially our little overseas ventures, which, by the way, when was the last time Congress voted on on going to war? Oh, World War II. Well, it's a good thing we've never been involved in a war since then. Oh, Oh, wait, Korea, Vietnam, Bosnia, Panama, Grenada, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, I mean, so no, it, it is, it is, please understand whatever you think about me and my politics or my monetary policy, I am intellectually consistent when it comes to bashing both sides for engaging in really, really bad, both fiscal and monetary policy. So no, it, it is, it is definitely the military budget as well. We can't afford to keep doing what we're doing and nobody wants to be told no. Right. But the, even the military budget, which is, which is the largest expenditure in non-discretionary funds or excuse me, in, in discretionary funds. That's still minuscule. It's like 5% yeah. of the GDP compared to Medicaid, Social Security, Medicare. And and whenever you bring this up, it's like, oh, you want to kill these programs. Here's what I want. I want us all to acknowledge that maybe, just maybe, politicians being primarily responsible for managing the retirement of millions of Americans might have been a bad idea. It sounds like what you're telling me, Nick, is that we can't fix the debt crisis because we can't fix the entitlement programs, but we also have multiple generations of people who have grown to rely well, on those programs. Related, but this is the, this was the genius of what FDR with with I will use Social Security as an example. Originally, the the plan for Social Security there was an argument to say that this is always going to this is only going to apply to a very very small sector of the population which can't provide for their own retirement. And FDR was adamant that nope, everyone was going to pay into it because he knew if everyone paid into it, then everyone had an expectation of getting something after the fact. And once you establish that, you would never be able to get rid of it. Sounds and that's like socialism. That's essentially what we have with that. And it's not as if the government has done a good job managing it. But I dare you as a politician to get out there and say what I'm saying, yeah. that this is this has been run horribly by the government, you're going to be told that you're cruel and you're mean and you don't care about old people, you want to take their money away. No, I, I, I desperately want to make good on our promises with the understanding that this was a bad setup. Politicians managing retirement is a bad idea. Politicians managing health insurance is a bad idea. They, they shouldn't be allowed to do it because now we're in this situation where because people become so dependent, they will not accept... And I don't mean everybody, obviously, but an overwhelming portion of the electorate will not accept anybody coming and saying, here's the hard truth. And we've, we've got to, we've got to adjust. We've got to retrench as they like to say in Jane Austen novels, right? But that that's where we're at. And so if, if we were able to balance the budget, if we were able to get our unfunded liabilities and unfunded liabilities are all the future payments we have to pay in things like social security, Medicaid, Medicare with a dwindling birth rate. Right. And more and more people getting older and living longer. And now more and more people are now eligible for the benefits with fewer, fewer people paying into it, combined with the deficit spending, everything else that the government's spending money on that are not legitimate functions of government. If we were able to massively cut the spending, if we were able to massively reform all the entitlements and put them onto a a track for stability, if we were able to adjust the entire way that we look at monetary policy where we no longer allowed the fed to have this sort of like unmitigated control over our currency. If we did all of those things tomorrow, we would start, we would start a 
kind of a brutal process of getting back to actual sound economic recovery. The problem is, is show me the person that is running on that. And even if they were, show me the person that can get elected on that. And that's why when that's why when I say it's highly probable that the dollar eventually moves toward collapse. And what that people look at is does that mean the dollar is just going to disappear? No. No, what it means is that the value of the dollar is going to be so adversely affected that people are going to get to a point where it's not going to be the normal thing where I just walk in and, and give you a dollar. There's going to have to be a, a massive adjustment. And the reason why it's different than like when Zimbabwe did this, right? Zimbabwe has done this a couple of times in the last two decades where they engaged in hyperinflation. You could go into a store in Zimbabwe and I think in the, what was the late nineties? No, no, no. It was like 2008. Okay. Well, that's, uh, was that the most recent one of the, no, the most recent one is like happening okay. right now. So in 2000, so to give you an idea in 2008, you could go into Zimbabwe and you could go shop for groceries. And by the time you got your grocery off the, the shelf to the checkout, it could have drastically increased in price. That's how, that's how hyper people were, were carrying monies. I have a trillion dollar, I have a hundred trillion dollars Zimbabwe note in my house. Really? And a hundred trillion dollars Zimbabwe note might've bought you some bread. So what did Zimbabwe do? Well, Zimbabwe for a while there basically just said, this is it. We're stopping everything and we're connecting our currency to the dollar. What is the U.S. connected to? Nothing. It's one thing when a country Gold, can say, Bitcoin. here's coin. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing when a country can say this. So this is why we think this is moving toward inevitability. It's not that the dollar disappears overnight. It's not that people don't start using the dollar. It's that it goes through a collapse in the sense. Can, can you that emphasize it, that again, Nick? Because there's been some comments from people thinking that like, oh, we're peddling stuff that Alex Jones is saying. We're saying that it's no, going to be Mad no, Max no. tomorrow. I'm not saying not that saying at all. Of that. You're not saying I, there's it's not going to be like tomorrow we wake up and there's not going to be electricity and no. we're driving around with 1970 style, you know, decked out cars with machine guns on them. And it's, yeah, the yeah. you're not going to have your Toyota Hilux with a 50 cal, you know, as a warlord, yeah. right? It's, it's it, not, it's not it. What, what we're saying, the future is Argentina. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> not Mad Max. Well, it's like even, okay. Even Rome, when it, we showed the correlation between what happened in Rome, that didn't mean that Rome stopped existing, right? It didn't mean that there was no more aqueducts. There was no more, like, that's not what happened. And the same thing in the United States, there's still going to be a lot of people. We're still going to have businesses. We're still going to have commerce. We're going to still have all of these things. The difference is, is the collapse represents a complete mistrust in the U.S. dollar, both domestically and internationally, to where now trade with the dollar. Right now, you have complete confidence that when you walk into a store and you and you pay for something, that whatever you're paying for is going to be roughly the same price that it was last week, and that of course people are going to accept your dollars in exchange. If we keep going along the route that we're currently doing right now, you you definitely within your lifetime could see a point where, where the dollar's value is no longer fixed to what it was before. And, and it could be so significant that there would there would require like a major retrenchment within the currency. Right. So th that's what we're talking about. I love I hold on. I love this comment from someone and it's so the country needs to put be put on the early stages of damn Ram, Dave Ramsey's debt snowball where you only enter a restaurant if it's your part-time job. <laughs> what, what the federal government needs to do is set up envelopes, right? And put cash in those envelopes. <laughs> yeah. I, by the way, there's there's one more question that I, I've heard from from people, certainly on the left, that like are in the MMT circle probably. MMT stands for modern monetary theory. It's the belief that because, uh, you know, the United States 
controls its own currency. And historically, countries did not control their own currency. It can do whatever it wants with it because it has the, the power to tax and spend and print. It, it, it can. We, we basically can print our way out of this problem. We can? No, we can't. But that's what the MMT people <laughs> oh, believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, so so one of the questions that I've heard from, from people is, is like, why can't the Fed just pivot or lower interest rates to deal with the debt? Well, that's a good question. Here's what I here's what I've got written down for that. I said that some people think that interest rates are under the Fed's control, sort of like pushing a button and magically obtaining a result. If this was true, no country on earth would ever have to fear high interest rates. Every country could just borrow in its own currency at a magic 0% interest rate forever. It would be an infinite supply of free money that the government could use on anything it wishes. There wouldn't be any sovereign debt crises anywhere. So why hasn't anyone thought of that before? I don't know. It's because it does not work that way. That's not how reality operates. It, people are not willingly going to, as I said earlier, people are not willingly going to loan you money if they right. know they're going to lose money on that investment. Yeah, it, it, It's why the government can't perpetually spend at a deficit forever because that money has to come from somewhere. That money either, you, 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 you can either tax it or you can borrow it or you can print it. But two of those three problems or two of those three solutions lead to expanding the money supply which yeah. then drives inflation and then we had another comment from james who was like oh well money printing and quantitative easing and the fed's balance sheet those aren't all the same things no but they all lead to the same place yeah, yeah. and the same place is higher inflation higher interest rates and it's why the outcome is either going to be basically weimar or great depression it's either going to be a hyperinflationary collapse or a massive credit crunch similar to the 1930s well, and, and no politician will ever intentionally induce a credit crunch like the 1930s nick because, would no be, nick would get voted out of office if he did it <laughs> that's exactly why no other politician would do it well let, let's 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 talk about it because that's yeah and, and look I, I love it when we have people on here commenting i we had one person say this is the only what do you say the only good line is politicians being in charge of retirement being a dangerous thing but the rest of this is economics by dummies for dummies we're dummies christian that's what this is um no there, there's nothing look all we're talking about this from an economic perspective Perspective, from a fiscal perspective, from a, a, a monetary perspective, it's, it's real simple. The reason why free, free market economics tends to work the best within a stable society is because it, it allows for risk, it allows for investment, but it, it, it doesn't socialize the cost of those things, right? So the profits are individual, but generally, again, when, when a transaction takes place between two people in a voluntary transaction, it's because both of them think they will benefit from the exchange. So profits are, are not a bad thing, right? Uh, but if I invest a bunch of money and then I fail and then the government comes and bails me out, well, now what I've done is I, I get the profits from assuming the risk of it goes well, but then if it fails, you socialize the, the cost, right? That's one of the things that, that the left uh, regularly rails about within our economic system that they're completely right about. Because that isn't free market economics, that's cronyism. It's actually, a, it's, you could call it a form of fascist economics because it's heavily relied on, on central planning, government central planning, while at the same time still allowing for private ownerships and the means of production. That's probably, I would say, one of the biggest differences between fascist economic policy and communist economic yeah. policy. In, in communism or, or socialism, the government owns the means of production. In fascism, the private sector can still own the means of production, but it does so in accordance with government dictates. 
right? And, and government, government. I've got um, two questions that I want to ask you, and it'll kind of lead to like, so what are you going to, what, what, what should we do about this, right? The first one is from Mary. This is actually a great question. So what are your projections for a timeline for those two options? And then the second one was from Wesley who said, why does this whole podcast seem like a promotion for homesteading for when my money is eventually worthless? Barter is back, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why this episode has been brought to you by Freedom Gold. Buy your Freedom Gold. Yeah. <laughs> we've got we've got no Freedom Water to sell you. We've got no, no Freedom. No, yeah. We've got no ranches in Wyoming to sell you or land to sell you. Well, let's let's get to the first question, the, yeah. the timeline, because I, I have a feeling you're probably more pessimistic than I am. So I, again, I don't think it'll be tomorrow. There were some comments earlier yeah. from people thinking like you're peddling the same thing that crazy people are. No, no. this is not going to happen tomorrow. This is going to be a great if you go back to the graph on the Roman Republic or sorry, yeah. Roman empire and the collapse of their currency, that didn't happen overnight. The crisis yeah. of the third century wasn't like an overnight thing. Yeah. Well, it was the crisis of the third century. Right? Yeah. It was called the crisis of the third century. It took place over, over, over decades and decades and decades. And it, the buildup, traces itself all the way back to basically like the the year of four emperors. And we're significantly more powerful and yeah. wealthy. And, this is yeah. not an overnight thing. This is going to be a, an event that will play out over years. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you will look back 20 years later and say, man, what happened over the last two decades? Yeah. And, and here, the, in terms of time frame, it's not like the dollar will just go up in flames tomorrow. It's a gradual process as the interest on the debt keeps growing and the federal government keeps running higher and higher and higher deficits every single year. And again, there will be ups and downs, but mm -hmm. the trend line will be, will be increasingly higher deficits over time. As that happens, the Fed will be forced to step in and print money to fund the federal government's deficits. And when it does that, it will increase the money supply, which will then drive higher inflation. What I'm the prediction I'm making is is that the uh, the the 2020s will be a period of sustained inflation. Everybody keeps talking about the 1970s, but I think it'll be more similar to like the 1930s and 40s. And that doesn't mean civilization will end. It just means that your money will be eroded much 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 faster than anybody has ever been used to. And I think the night the the, the the 20s and 30s of this century are going to be a period of sustained high inflation. Mm -hmm. That's the option for the hyperinflationary one. Now the crash, I don't think that'll be induced intentionally, but the Fed could accidentally tip over the scales and hike interest rates too fast or too far and, and force us into a credit crunch on accident because again no politician will ever in, in, yeah. ever intentionally do that that doesn't mean that they can't happen we saw that in the 1930s right it wasn't like the federal reserve intentionally triggered the the big crash and then a massive credit crunch they just wrote they rose interest rates too fast mm -hmm. in the in the late 1920s and so there's a chance the fed could do that that could happen a lot quicker yeah. right the hyperinflationary thing is is going to be over over a decade or more the the crash situation that that could happen like that um, now, that doesn't mean that we will immediately be plunged into the 1930s, but the government response, we saw this in the, in the 1930s, right? The government response to the crash in 1929 was a bunch of terrible policies that then made the depression inevitable at yeah. that point. So those are the options. Now, for for the the, the joking comment um, from Wesley about, you know, why does it feel like that you're about to sell me on homesteading? So I, I actually want to use that as an opportunity, Nick, to, to kind of, you know, ask you like, you know what's coming down the road, right? We either we either go Weimar or we go 1930s, <laughs> right? Like like if those are our two options and neither of those are great at all. Yeah. And I think that politicians are going to force us into the inflate our way out of this problem rather than credit crunch our way out. 
what exactly should you do with that knowledge? Well, so I actually, and me, by the way, me, that's not a setup for, no, no, for freedom it. water. Yeah. That's a genuine question. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you buy Nick's freedom food. <laughs> we don't have anything like that. By the way, the freedom water references to a YouTube video. Uh, it was Ryan Long. Yeah. It was hysterical. He was making fun of how liberals and conservatives advertise and their sponsors. But hey, so here's what I'll say. I, I think that I actually think that Americans um, a, as a people and in our economy, I, I do think that because we have such a long tradition of property rights, because we have a federalist system where you still have states, I, I actually think that we're a lot more resilient than than pointing to like the Roman Republican when they went through this or pointing to Zimbabwe or pointing to the Weimar Republic. I actually think America has a lot of institutional things going for it that prevents any sort of like you know, overnight collapse or, or, you know, Mad Max scenario. I don't think anything like that. I think what ends up happening over time is you, you see a situation and, and this is the part that I just, I don't know, right? One of the reasons why we do this podcast is because we want to properly diagnose problems so that when bad things happen, we're not suggesting the wrong cure for them. Um, I, I don't think I would hope nobody watching, even some of the people that disagree is, is the idea that, you know, inflationary monetary policy is actually a good thing, or what we really need is more government control over the economy, or what we really need is to expand all of these government programs. If you do that, I don't know what to tell you, because I, I, I'm looking at this going over, you know, decades now, and, and it all seems to be moving in the same direction. And I do believe that we have largely created an electorate that predominantly goes to government schools, government-run schools, right, public schools, that, that teach them that FDR saved us from the Great Depression by ex massively expanding government intervention into the economy. And that's just not an accurate depiction of what, what took place at all. Um, and, and so when, when you have people that for generations now have been taught that when something bad happens in the economy, it's the fault of capitalism. And that's when wise, you know, government bureaucrats and politicians have to come in and, and you know, fight back against laissez-faire excesses through more regulations that leads people to believe that when you see problems like this, the problem was, is that we didn't have enough government intervention. And I, and I'm hoping what people will see is that no too much government intervention is actually what is leading to these long-term problems. Too much dependency on the government for your retirement, for your healthcare, for your education is, is contributing to these long-term problems. And what that does is it creates an electorate that has unreasonable expectations. Probably the best quote on this ever was Thomas Sowell, who, who said that basically the reason why, um, you know, so, so many politicians are actually, I'm just going to look it up because I don't want to get the, the, the quote wrong, but um, well, Nick looks that up. There's another um, economist that is absolutely worth looking into because he basically predicted this almost a century ago. And that's F.A. Hayek. Um, in, in, in the road to serfdom, he, he basically lays out that this is what's going to happen. And it took almost a century to get to this point and people kept predicting it over and over again and getting it wrong. But we're getting really close to it, to it actually taking place. Keynesianism is being pushed to the brink. I mean, it, it's getting to the point where the Federal Reserve can either crash the economy by raising interest rates too high to fight inflation, or they can crash the dollar by giving up the fight against inflation in order to prop up the everything bubble. And that's why I keep saying we either get to choose between Weimar or the Great Depression. There was a question from James who well, said- Well, let me, let me finish. I found this quote. Okay. The, the quote by Sol was, the fact that so many successful politicians are such shameless liars is not only a reflection on them, it is also a reflection on us. When the people want the impossible, only liars can satisfy. 
Now, the, the reason why, again, I'm a little bit more confident in the American economy being able to kind of struggle its way through this, figure some things out and adapt is because of the reasons I said before, an emphasis, a, a tradition of property rights within the United States, a federalist system where states can kind of push back against, uh, you know, you know, again, if it was the federal government collapsing and that was it, that would be a problem. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going to have serious currency issues, which then is going to lead to uh, states having to kind of pick up a, a, a bigger role with some of the social services services that in some ways are, are kind of relied upon in large part by government subsidization. Um, now, the, the question I think you're going to ask me is about that. What's the alternative to the Fed? Yeah, what's the alternative to the Fed? So there, there's kind of two approaches here. There's the, the Austrian school approach, and then there's the monetarist approach, which is, is the Friedman of the Chicago school approach. Friedman thought that you should kind of replace the Fed with basically a calculation. And what it would take into account is things like the population, productivity, a couple of other factors. And what it would do is it would say, it would essentially link you know, your, your, your money printing and, and to some degree your, your, uh, interest rates based off of that. And, and I don't know, I think it would certainly be better than what we have right now, which is a system that I think that is far too prone to political manipulation. If this was just a calculation, then at least it would be somewhat more stable and predictable. The Austrian school goes more with, with the approach to say that, especially when it comes to things like interest rates, it's better to let individual banks, essentially manage that. And the reason why is fairly simple. Interest rates are supposed to reflect what's going on with respect to savings and spending in the economy. Um, when the Fed is setting interest rates, it's a lot of times setting interest rates based off of, you know, these short-term loans that banks use to get money in order to cover, you know, deposits and people, you know, pulling out money. Um, so again, if you wanted to keep a Fed structure in place, I, I would, I would go with more of the Milton of Friedman approach. If you wanted it again, that it's not as if the economy didn't exist and banking didn't exist before we had a federal reserve and, and anybody that anybody that wants to sit oh, here, but what and about you, all the bank crises? Well, that that's happened. the thing. Anybody that wants to sit here and tell you that we had a rash of bank crises is because we didn't have the federal reserve go. I, w I would challenge you go back and actually look at the nature of, because they did exist, right? They're, people are still going to make bad decisions to include bankers. They did exist, but go look at what was happening in the kind of more of the free banking era versus what has happened post the Federal Reserve. You did not have these nationwide yes. collapses where the Federal Reserve needed to step in and set a lower interest rate and then print a bunch of money and then Congress needed to bail out things. You would have one or two individual banks fail, yeah. but that's part of the market itself because yeah. eventually the interest rates would find a happy medium. One bank would charge too much for interest and people, you know, or, or offer too much for interest and, and it wouldn't be able to find any customers. The other one would offer too little and then it wouldn't make enough money and then would go bust. But eventually another bank would come along and it would find the market would set the, me, the the interest rate. And by the way, in some ways, the market could still set the interest rate because it doesn't matter what the Fed does at this point. Yeah. The market is, is screaming at the top of its lungs. We demand higher yield, yeah. right? And as I said earlier, well, why can't the Fed just set the interest rate lower to fix this problem? Why can't it set negative interest rates like they have in Japan? Well, because if that was a solution every single country on the planet would have zero or negative interest rates and suddenly the problem would be solved. So why don't they do that? Because that's not how reality works. Yeah. It, you can't just, what, what these people are demanding, even if they don't realize it, what these politicians are demanding is the ability to create free money out of thin air yeah. and then use it to spend it on their pet projects to get elected. Wait, there, there that's are, gen, that, that is the, the, the yeah. core cynical yeah. end state of what they really want. They want infinite free money Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're a kid that's demanding 
you know, candy or something like that without yeah. having any money to pay for it. Well, I really want it. Well, that doesn't change the fact that you can't afford well, no, it. They, they, they want they free change, money. Then they change it to, well, we, you need it. Right? And so you're now, an evil person so if now, you say no. Exactly. It's like, no, no, people need this. And so if you say no, you're the bad guy. Or, and this is sometimes the Republican excuse, it's okay, we will grow our way out of it. Well, again, bad, artificially low interest rates create malinvestment. And, and that's the part that needs to be understood is that when the government is constantly manipulating this prospect, it, it doesn't lead to greater investment in the future. It leads to malinvestment because now people are making decisions based off of what politicians might arbitrarily do from one day to the next based off of their desire to get reelected. And that is, that is very problematic from a monetary policy perspective, from a fiscal perspective, and from an overall economic perspective. So now- What are we, you going to do about it? Now we're going to move into <laughs> the, what are you going to do about it? I mean, look, I don't give- we, Let's we just will, ask you what we you will, are We doing. will talk about economics all day long. We don't give financial advice. I'm not giving you stock tips. I'm not telling you to go out and buy gold. I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing anything. What we're trying to do is, is let you know that, yeah, there, there are issues with this, and this is going to lead to some- It, it is either going to lead one way or another- Right. Collapse is, is the worst case scenario where all of a sudden, again, you just have a devastating economic outcome with widespread depression um, and, and the dollar has to be completely reformulated uh, based off of a debt crisis. Another potential thing here is that people actually do wise up to the fact that we, we do have to drastically alter the way that we look at some of the larger entitlement programs, the government intervention to the economy. Um, one of the things that I, I think is actually hopeful is that if people can understand that politicians aren't good at this, that doesn't mean nobody is, right? I, I've used this analogy before. When my car breaks down, I don't take it to my dentist, right? Because if I did, my dentist wouldn't be able to fix it. And then if I came to the conclusion, well, the problem is, is I don't have a dentist that cares enough about me. That would be a stupid conclusion. All right. Just because the government's not good at managing some of these things doesn't mean nobody is. And, and what we've seen over example examples that if people would have been, if people would have taken the same amount of money that they were paying into social security and they would have paid it into just a general retirement fund that covered like the whole New York stock exchange, they, they would have retired with, with over a million dollars in the bank, which, oh, by the way, doesn't go away when they die. It gets transferred to their you know, to their heirs who can then use it in order to build up. And so th there's other things that we can do here that are actually beneficial. There, a lot of the things that we've been doing with government intervention in the economy has actually held us back from what we could actually achieve. So th the bottom line is that it, as long as inflation increases at the rate it does, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to store up a bunch of dollars and let it sit there. The question is, is what are you invested in? Well, I I'll tell you this much. I'm not at a point right now where I'm not invested in, in highly speculative companies that are just, you know, super hoping that there's going to be a bunch of future purchasing, you know, you know, 10 years from You're now. You're not going to put your life savings into DoorDash? <laughs> yeah, or some sort of tech, you know, bubble. No, it, it, it's about the idea of, I, I know what, what I've become, what's, what's been important to me lately, and it's funny that they, they mentioned the homesteaders thing, because I have gotten more into that, not because I think it's the, the future of my financial success. I've gotten into it because I appreciate the, the work involved, and I like the idea of creating a certain degree of independence. I think it helps create responsibility with my kids and their homeschooling uh, on caring for animals and, and being able to you know grow crops and things like that. I think all of that's important. I love to be in a position. We had a lot of neighbors, um, or we had a lot of people within our church and whatnot, that when that egg when the egg prices like just went through the roof, we were one of their sources of eggs. Like I loved being in a position doing something that we did, not because it was an economic fallback. We did it because 
it was fun and we enjoyed it and we like you know we like the taste of you know free range eggs better than we do that we can get at the store but then all of a sudden when things went bad we had a surplus that went way beyond our needs that we could use to help somebody else I like being in that position. I think it's fun to do, and I love kids always. There was a reason why even during World War II, you, you started to see things like Freedom Gardens and things like yeah. that, where it was like, look, if you if you have the capacity and you have the knowledge to do some of these things, you know, maybe maybe chances are you'll never need it, but you never know. And when you do, it's, an, it's a good thing to know. The, the other thing too is like, I, I'm looking more and more for hard assets. I want assets that have val intrinsic value. The Chinese do too. Yeah. <laughs> I want assets that have an intrinsic value. What's the difference here, right? Well, a company with a really bad PE ratio has a lot of speculative value. Maybe one day it will make a lot of money and your investment will return. Real estate has a lot of intrinsic value. Now it can be speculative as well, right? We, we've seen this before oh, yeah. where dur during the height of the uh, asset bubble in uh, Japan, like the, the entire real estate of Tokyo was worth more than just Tokyo, one city in Japan, the real estate was worth more than all the real estate in California. No, no, no. Worth more than all the real estate in the United States. Just Tokyo? The Imperial Palace okay. in Tokyo was worth more than all the real estate in California. All right, so in, there you go. That's, how they, so that's obviously speculative value, that's not intrinsic value. Yeah. But owning things like properties, there, there's there's always, as the joke goes, right? They're not making any more of it. Right? Unless, they're, unless they're the there's Dutch. There's only so much land. They're right? not making any more of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, that's what I've looked at is that I, there's a couple of things that I want to do that are really important to me over the next couple of you know decades, really. So I'm 43. I, I, I want um I want to be able to have property that I know that no matter what happens in the economy, there's something that I own, there's something that I can use and put into production. Um, there's things that I can I can grow on that, I can raise on that, I can use for other productive purposes. I also want a place where my kids and grandkids can always come back and be home. Right? I, I want to be able to provide them some sort of stability. Now, it's not because I expect them to go out and do the same thing. I want them to go out when they're young and take these kinds of, of risks and look for opportunities in, in order to you know, do what they love to do. Um, but by the same token, I also want to be able to provide that stability for my family. That's like, look, you're never going hungry. You're never going homeless. Right? I, I, can, I got you. Um, and, and that's important to me on a moral level as well as an economic level. And, and so those are, again, I'm not recommending everybody else go out and do this. I, I'm saying that I, I, I agree with Christian in this. I'm not as, I'm not as pessimistic as Christian. That's, that's usually the, the story around here. Um, but I, I, I do think that Christian does really good analysis. And I, and I do think we've, we've gotten to a part where we've set up certain foundations that until we can change the way that people think about some of these things, we're going to continue to elect people that are going to continue to engage in the same problems that, or the same bad policies that we've had. And, and a lot of times the answer comes from people that, Oh, but we're so big. We're so rich. We're so powerful. All of that is true. And, and when you are big and rich and powerful, it gives you the ability to, extend your decline sometimes by centuries, right? It, so, you know, this is, but we are at a point where I'm looking at things move a lot faster in this sort of, in this sort of age. Um, and, and I do think it's necessary for people to, to remember that certain skills, certain basic capabilities, certain basic skills um, that maybe don't pay the most in a high tech economy are still worth knowing are still worth learning uh, because you do never know when you're going to. I mean, there's it. a lot of people that will say, like, personally for me, I, I, I don't actually own any gold. Um, I probably should buy some. But, like, 
I, I finally started buying like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, I want to buy like land. I would love to buy buy real estate. And I, I mean like somewhere where I can actually live. I don't mean like in the heart of, you know, New York City or something like that. Um, but like the, the problem is, and there were actually some comments at the very beginning of this about reminding people, you know, e executive orders from like the Great Depression. Remember how like FDR outlawed the possession of gold. Yeah. And and by the way, this is uh, uh, one thing that, that needs to be brought up in the show is something like a central bank digital currency. Yeah. What happens? Oh, my gosh. What happens if the federal government tries to outlaw Bitcoin or outlaw Ethereum? Um, or outlaw Dogecoin, yeah. um, right? And, and Or what happens if they try to outlaw the possession of gold and silver and they try to mandate, you know, that, that you use a, a central bank digital currency? That would be a very catastrophic thing because at, at that, I mean, I'd love for you to explain it. That You, you would see what happened in Canada two, uh, two years ago in February 2021, or actually I think it was February 2020, or so, sorry, 2022 when, when the trucker protest happened and yeah. the government literally like cut people off from their bank accounts. Yeah. Um, if you have a central bank digital currency, that, that effectively means that everybody is banking with the central bank. Yeah. And what happens when the central bank says, we're not going to treat you like a customer anymore? Yeah. And, and again, every time we bring something up, there's there'll always be somebody talking about how we're doomer and gloomer. No, we're, we're pointing to things that have actually taken place in other countries. And we're not just talking about North Korea and communist China. We're talking about things that have happened in Canada. You know, I, I go look at the number of people that have been arrested in the UK for saying things online that didn't even constitute violent threats. So it's no, we, we are moving there. There is a, there is this kind of drive toward authoritarianism, which is concerning. And, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to be told I'm a crazy person for saying I am seeing more and more people suggest that the solution is more government control, whether it be intervention in the economy, whether it be gov government control or goods and services, whether it be a digital currency, whether it be agriculture. And I don't agree with that. I don't, uh, it's not that I disagree with it because decentralized decentralization solves all of the problems. Can we make one thing very clear? You could have the perfect society with respect to what we would want. Free market economics, very, very limited government for, for anything, you know, mass, you know, expand, greatly expand individual freedom with a respect for individual responsibility. And guess what? People would still make mistakes. They would still crash their cars. They would still run businesses on the ground. They would still do all of those things because people are fallible. This is not about creating utopia. It doesn't exist. Literally. <laughs> This is about creating the situation where we we maximize the freedom of individuals to be able to make their own way with the understanding that they're going to have very different talents, very different preferences, very different outcomes as a result of their level of effort, that there's always going to be a sense of unfairness with respect to what we can control in, a, in an unfair and fallen world, right? That That's all what we're looking for. But if every time you see a society that has, has grown prosperous as a result of adopting as many of those principles as possible, if every time you see a problem, you say, oh, the problem is with too much individual liberty, too much personal responsibility, too much freedom, and what we really needed was politicians micromanaging those decisions for us because then we could have prevented that bad thing from happening. Well, <laughs> it, again, the, the whole Federal Reserve thing is a, a perfect example of this. Where, where there are bank failures in the free banking era, era of the United States, absolutely because people make bad decisions, and, and sometimes they make immoral and wrong decisions. Does that mean when we set up the Federal Reserve, there was no more banking crises? No more banking crisis. We got the federal government. Yeah. The federal government. Silicon Valley Bank didn't yeah. actually collapse. We, we've, got, <laughs> we've got an incredibly powerful central bank in the form of the Federal Reserve, and we have got 
tens of thousands of pages in banking regulations. So glad we've never had another bank collapse. So glad it's. Oh never- wait, we had one a month ago. I mean, come on, we one of the largest ones in American the history, second largest one ever. So it's like, please, like understand that when we argue for this decentralization, it's not because we're, we're it's not because we think it'll achieve perfection. We just think a society which respects individual liberty and personal responsibility is far more likely to achieve better results than ones where politicians are micromanaging everything. The, can, I, can I say one more thing before we get yeah. to the close here? The positive scenario of, of like what happens is that we don't get a central bank digital currency. You don't get more government control over the economy. You get more decentralization. You have either a return to the gold standard or you have an adoption of things like Bitcoin or Ethereum or yeah. other cryptocurrencies that are decentralized by nature. And that that becomes the mechanism through which you buy goods and services mm-hmm. rather than a currency issued by the, the the central bank. And if that happens, well, suddenly the options are open for us to actually return to, to a limited government constitutional republic where we're not having all these fights in D.C. and people can live their lives the way that they want to because the government will have a lot less power over people's yeah. lives because they don't control the currency. But here's the thing. The, the the whole like um, analogy to Rome that somebody made earlier and that we made in our previous wine minute with the crisis of, of the third century, part of the reason it was a crisis was because when the currency had been debased so much, the central government in Rome, the emperor, he, he couldn't command the loyalty of the legions because they didn't have enough money to pay the legions and the legions wanted to be paid. But what happened when suddenly the denarius had been debased so much and could purchase so little, relatively speaking, that the legions kept demanding more and more and more money. And the Praetorian Guard demanded more and more and more money. And when they couldn't get paid, they got killed. One emperor after another would just get deposed by his own men or be assassinated by the There was a time where the Praetorian Guard, imagine the Secret Service auctioning off the presidency. That's what happened. That's what happened in Rome. So imagine a scenario where the dollar gets eroded so much that federal law enforcement and the military are unsatisfied with the pay that they're being offered. And now the federal government does not have the ability. They no longer have control over the power of the purse to to coerce states and get them to fall in line. And they can't pay the military and they can't pay law enforcement enough to justify ordering them to do whatever it is that they want to order them to do. That's how you get this like slow motion collapse. And when I say collapse again, I don't mean Mad Max (laughs) dune buggies in the desert. We got some people watching that are very upset that we're not going to have Mad Max. And I also, I also don't mean a complete disintegration of the United States. Like I've heard some people say, I mean, it's, it's all a collapse in the sense of the collapse that Rome went through in the third century. It wasn't that Rome ceased to exist. It's that it was in a crisis for a very long time until Aurelian, because I'm not going to give Diocletian the credit, until Aurelian managed to piece it back together. So... You'll you'll find out at one time we're not Diocletian fans around here. So so the conclusion is is that I think the way that you solve this problem is through decentralization, either a return to the gold standard in an abolishment of the Federal Reserve or an adoption of something like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And if you want to prepare for it, I, I'm looking at those two places. And if I get enough money one day, I, I want to buy land. Yeah. I, I'm not a landowner yet. I, I don't own property. But like those are the things that I'm looking at. And hard assets that people must find a way to purchase. People must buy food. Yeah. People must use oil. People must use hard metals like copper and stuff like that. It, it, so like I, I'm really personally, I'm really bullish on those assets myself. I, I just, again, I think, there's a, I think there's a big difference between intrinsic value versus speculative value. And again, and again, speculative value can really pay off. It has for 
you know, you know, time immemorial. But it, it's when when you start to get to a place where you're looking at you know a lot of bad government decisions, then I I tend to be a little bit on the more warrior side. poet society said I didn't know about the Praetorian Guard. It was it was Julius Didianus, I think it was, who was the guy that they murdered. No, the guy that they auctioned it to. Yeah. And then they killed him. And when they came to kill him, he said, but what evil have I done? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me let me go ahead and wrap this up for you, because I know we've been going on here a while. I hope we did a better job of incorporating your questions into this episode. Again, we're going to slowly move to getting them up on screen so we see it. But we cannot thank you enough for the feedback, positive, negative and otherwise. We love to have it. It helps fuel the conversation and make sure that we're talking about the things that you really care about. The bottom line and all of this is, look, we didn't get here overnight. We're not going to probably get out of it overnight. And if you're listening to Christian, then there's probably going to be some bad things up ahead. And I think he, I think he tends to be right on most of that, even though I'm a little bit more optimistic. But what this really comes down to is, again, properly diagnosing the problem. Why are certain things happening the way they are? Why are we able to kind of predict how they might happen in the future? And what this really comes down to is making sure that you are educating the people around you, yourself, your kids, etc., and understanding the bad decisions that lead to some of the more catastrophic things that we see happening within civilization and really embracing this idea of, you know what, there are certain things I can control, right? I'm going to vote for the right people. Maybe you run for office. Maybe you do things like that. There's certain things I can control, but there's certain things I can't. And what I find to be the most beneficial in everything that we talk about, especially when we get in these, these doom and gloom conversations sometimes is look, look, get, get, find someone you love, get married, have kids, spend time with them, get some property, right? Learn, learn some skills, educate your children. These are, these are things for which there is currently no law against <laughs> and, and they're wonderful and they make life worth living. They're, they're, they're valuable, not simply because of their economic value, but their value because of what it actually does for people when they have meaning and purpose within their lives. And I have found that one of the best things that you can do to convince somebody of something being true is to not just constantly focus on the opposite or the negative, but to actually show them that there, there is such value in, again, <laughs> having your faith, having your family, having purpose and meaning, helping other people uh, when you can and developing those skill sets to be able to do so. You don't need to ask permission to do that. You don't need to wait for Congress to make a law. You don't need to wait for your state government to pass a budget amendment. You can find ways to do this and you can proactively do it right now. And I will tell you, it will make your life better. And more and more, regardless of what the culture tells people, regardless of what politicians tell people, when the people around you see you doing something, that does bring meaning, purpose, and value to your life, they're going to start asking questions, and it provides the perfect opportunity to say, look, I'm not telling you what to do, but I am telling you what's worked for me. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next episode.